So we're coming near the end of our Kingdom versus Culture series. We most likely will close this out at the end of the month. Um, but I, as I was praying, I felt led to do uh, this sermon title, which is Resistance versus Rebellion. And the Star Wars background was not planned, but my wife pointed it out. So uh, it looks a little Star Wars-y. Um, a few weeks ago on Palm Sunday, uh, I preached basically through the whole Bible. And the only complaint was people said, why didn't you just go to Revelation? I went Genesis to Acts. Um, and I didn't feel like going through all the imagery and Revelation in a short amount of time. So maybe that'll be a different sermon. But essentially I told the story of God. And I said that there's only one story for us that is worth living out of. All of us have come from different lives, had different childhoods, different families, and we believe different things about the world. And the things that we believe are what we ultimately live out of. And that's why it's so important for us to connect our lives to the story of the Bible, because that's the family that we have been grafted into when we gave our lives to Jesus. And so we are supposed to live from the story of this book, not what good or bad happened to you prior to coming into the family of God. And at the end of that sermon, I talked about how the Holy Spirit had been given to us and that's why Jesus left, is he sent the Holy Spirit so that we could be filled with his power to do his ministry and work. And last week, Tom did a message on being spirit-led versus effort-driven. And we know that we are called to be led by the Spirit. We don't just do things out of our own effort or own motive, but we yield ourselves to the Spirit and what he would have us do. And so I am going to continue, essentially, Tom last week finished in Ephesians Five, and I'm going to start where he ended and we're just gonna continue. So one of the things that uh, I care about deeply is spiritual formation, which is how we become more like Christ over time. And I'll, oftentimes when I'm talking to people about it, I'll kind of put it into these three R's, resistance, rest, and rhythms. The rhythms and the practices, the spiritual practices that we have in our lives are important because they're what we fall back onto when times are tough. And if you don't have things in your life that get you back into the right place with God when hard things come, you will start to be formed into things that are not what we desire to be formed into. Rest is something that God ordained into time. He gave us Sabbath, a full day. For us to be formed correctly, we have to rest. We have to sit with the things that God is doing. We have to get alone in silence and solitude and let the spirit work on our heart. When we are busy, when we are hurried, when we are rushed, we become a different type of person than Jesus was when he was here. But what we're gonna focus on today is resistance. This uh, is a definition. If you look up resistance, there's a bunch of different definitions. This one is connected to electricity. And I felt that it was fitting for us in a spiritual context. So the opposition of the body or substance to the current passing through it, resulting in a change of electrical energy into heat or another form of energy. I'm gonna reread it, but just with the bold. Opposition of the body to the current passing through it, resulting in a change into another form. And what I want to talk to us today about is that there's an enemy that is seeking to form us, or you could say deform us out of the image of God. And that would be the oppositional force that is seeking to come against us. And when we resist that force, we are then formed into 
another form, which is Christ-likeness. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. So spiritual resistance, we're gonna be reading from Ephesians and a popular passage that most of us could probably quote is warring against the powers and principalities of darkness. And we do this both at a communal level and at an individual level. And then we also do this in the physical where we can see, but also in the ethereal or the spiritual world. So for example, you can fast physically and that's something that we can see. You can also pray though, and you see that someone is praying something in the physical, but that is also doing something that you can't see in the spiritual. So it's two part. So last week when Tom was talking through Ephesians, he gave us a a picture of how Ephesians one through three is essentially Paul praying a prayer over the church of Ephesus. And he actually uses the word apocalypse, which is revealing or unveiling of Jesus. And he's essentially saying, you have to understand who Jesus is and who you are in Jesus for chapters four through six to make any sense or for you to even be able to do chapters four through six. And so our prayer is continually, Lord, would you reveal, would you unveil who you truly are so that I can live into the reality of your story and that that will allow me to do chapters four through six. So we're about to go through um, in Ephesians this uh, address to wives and husbands, to children and fathers, and to slaves and masters. And it's important for us to recognize where this letter is going to. So in their, in history, in context, there were patriarchs in society and they were the husband or the father or the master. And there were subordinates to them, which would have been wives, women, children, and slaves. So the household instructions were always addressed to the man of the house, the leader of the house alone. And he ruled over those who were by nature inferior, which was women, children, and slaves. And this is just well-known history. You can go research all you want, but Aristotle wrote about this in uh, his piece, Politics. And what Ephesians is going to do, what Paul does is amazing. He reveals that because the Messiah is now the head and source, there is an elevation of status to equality among all people. And he shows this very directly by referring to the culturally inferior parties first. So as we go through this passage and as we read, pay attention to the fact that he addresses wives before husbands. He addresses children before fathers and he addresses slaves before masters. And none of those would have ever been done culturally in their society at all. So the second you're sitting down and someone is reading this letter to you, you are immediately struck by this happening. We don't even think about it in our culture and context, but this is very intense missiology, which is Paul is in a culture that is opposed to Jesus. And he is very delicately attacking the powers and principalities by addressing things in reverse and calling people to elevate those who would normally be seen as less. So I'm gonna paint a picture for us real quick so that as we're reading this, we all come through it from maybe the same vantage point. So if it helps, you can close your eyes. I'm just gonna do a brief description. My plan is not for this to be perfectly historically accurate, but it's to paint a picture of what it might have been like to go and hear this letter be written. 
So picture yourself as a slave in Ephesus, which is the third largest city in Rome. And in Italy, one in three people were slaves, but across the Roman empire, one in five were slaves. So you're going about your normal duties as a slave, the things that you're required to do by your master. And your master comes to you and tells you that he's gonna go to visit one of his friend's house. And you're not very excited. You're actually kind of upset because you know that the master's house that he's going to, who's his friend, is actually the cruelest of all of the masters in the city. But you don't get to choose what you're doing. You're a slave. So you're following your master. And as you're walking along, you walk past the temple of Artemis, which is one of the seven wonders of the world, whose priestesses are prostitutes. And you worship by performing sexual acts of immorality with the priestesses. And this is just normal. You're just walking along the street. And as you're walking, you also notice slaves being beaten and treated as less than human along the way. But you're not thinking much about it because it's just another day in Rome, another day in Ephesus. And as you're walking, you also notice that women are continually cowing and bowing down before all men, not just their husbands, but they're seen as lesser. And so they are reverently avoiding or or looking down or away from the men as they walk across throughout the street. And you also see children being scolded by parents or people who have a higher level of authority than them. And once again, you don't think too much about it. Just as you look to your right and left, this is just a normal process. This is the normal every day in Ephesus. And you know that you're getting close to your, your master's friend's house and you're not excited about it because you know how cruel he is. You open the door and you walk inside. And what you notice shocks you. At the table where there's places of honor, there are elderly slaves sitting down. There are women sitting at the table. And in the place of honor where the master would normally be sitting, there was a child. And the cruel master himself was standing there next to them, which would not normally occur. And when you looked into his eyes where you were used to seeing cruel, anger, malice, and hatred, you see a softness and it confuses you. And then all of a sudden, a woman stands up and she's holding a piece of paper. And she says that it's a letter from the apostle Paul, who's a disciple of someone that they're calling the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they began to read this letter. Scene. So as we read this passage, I want us to read it from that perspective. Think about it from the shoes of this person. Verse 21, and subject yourselves to one another in fear of Christ. Wives, subject yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church and he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. So he addresses wives first. And then what we're gonna see him do is equate marriage to Christ in the church. And what he does here is amazing. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word 
that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands also ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one, uh, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are parts of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking in reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, as for you individually, each husband is to love his own wife the same as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. What Paul does here is elevate what women do to equality to what men do outside of the home. So he uses in 527 washing and having no stain or wrinkle. And these are metaphors connected to washing clothes, stain spotting and ironing. And then he uses the word to nourish, which is used here in connection to providing food or care. And then he uses the word to cherish, which literally means to make warm. And this primarily refers to what a mother provides for her children. So what he does is he describes what our Messiah Jesus has done is the same actions that women in the home do. This would be so confusing to everyone in society because that was viewed as a lesser job. And what Paul is saying is the home duties, what you do at home is just as important as what the husband does outside of the home. And he's telling the husband that what Christ does in his actions towards us as the church is what the woman does in the home for the family. That is miraculous in a culture like this. There are places in the world right now that are like this, where if you read this, it would not sit well. Then it goes to this. He addresses children before fathers, which doing this in this culture would have been a dishonorable thing to do. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. So he addresses them in a way that would dishonor the parents based off society. But what does he ask the children to do? Honor, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may turn out well for you and that you may live long on the earth. So dishonoring and addressing children first, but then he asks the children to honor their parents. And so he's playing off these dynamics that are gonna be messing with people's emotions as they're reading this. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And then the last one, slaves before masters. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling. In sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart with goodwill, render service as to the Lord and not to people. Pay attention to verse eight. Knowing that whatever good each one does, he will receive this back from the Lord, whether slave or free. Paul, in that last line, immediately lifts every slave to equality with those who are free. He says, it does not matter who you are or what society or the world tells you. 
your deeds are seen the same way from God and they will be judged equally regardless of what the world says about you or what the world says your worth is. And then it goes to masters. Masters do the same things to them. Again, equaling out the relationship between slaves and masters. Masters, you have to do the same thing, the same jobs, the same responsibilities that the slaves do. Do the same things to them, give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. I think most of us probably in life have been asked the question or thought about, if you knew that you were gonna die tomorrow, how would you spend your last day? And we'd maybe list the foods that we want to eat or the places that we want to go or all of these experiences that we wanna fill our life with in the last day that we know we're gonna be here. You know what Jesus did on his last day? In John 13, he washed his disciples' feet the day before he was crucified. And that wasn't just him doing something so that it would be in the Bible so that we could go, oh, look, Jesus did that. His whole ministry, his whole life was that way. He didn't choose to do something different on the last day. He stayed the same person at the end as he was from the beginning. And you see, when we choose to yield and to surrender our lives to Jesus, what we are saying is that this is who we are choosing to be. That when we have the opportunity, we will wash the people's feet who are around us, regardless of their position. He's the king of the universe and he washed their feet and they didn't have clean, modern, Western, I take a shower everyday toes, <laughs> right? This is everything that they did was barefoot. There was no plumbing. This is nasty, gross germ feet and he didn't care. He loved them and he served them. And when we say yes to Jesus, what we are saying yes to is this an upside down kingdom. Those of us with power and privilege and position utilize the strengths and blessings that we have to elevate those who by culture's standards are lesser or lower than. And that is what Paul is doing in this letter. We get caught up in conversations about headship or was God okay with slavery? And we miss that he's telling people to live a completely different type of life and that it doesn't matter what the world has labeled you as. We live in a kingdom that doesn't make any sense. You work unto the Lord and not unto man. You love your wife as Christ loved the church. Last time I checked, he said yes to the point of death on a cross. No matter how your marriage is going, if you and your husband decided that your husband gets to be a dictator in your marriage, but he loves you to the point of crucifixion on a cross, it's not gonna matter. We get too caught up in all of these conversations about what it's supposed to look like and we lose sight of it doesn't matter because you're always called to elevate other people higher than yourself. Don't let the culture steal what God is trying to do among his people in such a way that it will impact the world so deeply, so compellingly that they can't but wonder how we do it. Now we're gonna go talk about the armor of God. What I want us to recognize is that Paul addresses 
all of these social constructs and social issues for how we relate to each other. And he immediately goes into the armor of God. Typically when this is talked about or preached on or quoted, we think like, I'm a warrior in God's army. Look at my armor. I'm awesome. Individual, me, yay, let's go. Which sure, you could utilize it that way, but that's taking out of Paul's intended purpose here, which is as a community of believers, in order to even do what he just told us, we have to do this. So let's read it together. Finally, or other translations might say, from now on. So essentially continue doing this. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. The schemes of the devil comes up earlier in the book in Ephesians. And some of those schemes are disunity. So we just talked about what type of relationships we have to have with each other for unity. And then he's telling us in order to stand firm against the schemes of the devil, which is disunity, we have to put on the armor of God. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist on the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. I wanna connect this to a couple, to one other place. This passage is paralleled to Romans, the letter that he writes to Rome. And the night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let's rid ourselves of the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and debauchery, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. Paul also talks about the armor uh, in Thessalonians. So this isn't something that Paul is just like creating out of the blue. This is something that's normal vocabulary for him when he's talking to the church. And what he tells us here in Rome or in the book of Romans is that the armor is putting on Christ. It's putting on the character of God in order to do all those things we just listed between our relationships with each other, we have to become the fruit of the spirit. We can't just live life normally. We have to become a different type of person. We have to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, a lot of times when I preach, uh, many of you will reach out to me and ask for the PowerPoint so that you can study it later. Um, we're about to go through some different passages um, and I'm highlighted here um, what each next slide is gonna be connected to. So if you want to study it later, you'll be able to do that. I just don't have the time to read huge chunks of Isaiah today. <laughs> um, but what I want to show here, even in these highlights, is Paul's mind has been baptized and marinated in this book. It was just the Old Testament at the time. But for us, where our minds are saturated with Netflix and Instagram and have about 10 years of aggressive, horrible pornography that is rampant in society. And that's what our brains and culture and society have been baptized in. Paul's brain is baptized in this book. And what he does when he crafts this armor, he's not just pulling stuff out of thin air. He is specifically taking places from the Old Testament armor pieces that God used there 
and just saying, look, God's armor here is God's armor here and you're supposed to have it. So let's read it together. Stand firm therefore, having belted your waist with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having strapped on your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So from Isaiah 11, he takes the truthfulness belt of his waist and it opens in verse one saying, then a shoot will spring up from the stem of Jesse. Jesse is the father of David. And then you connect the dots between David and Jesus. And we're saying, we don't need another David. We need a new person because David failed. <laughs> so we're looking for a new uh, shoot to spring up, not from the same line, but a new one. And if you go read the whole passage, it's just, this is all about Jesus. And then you get truthfulness, a belt of his waist. And then Isaiah 59, also encourage you to go read the whole chunk in your own time. And he saw that there was no one and he was astonished that there was no intercessor. So Jesus, his own arm accomplished salvation for himself and his own righteousness upheld him. And he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head. And he put on garments of recompense as clothing and he wrapped himself in a garment of passion. Isaiah 52, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of the one who brings good news, announcing peace, announcing salvation. Genesis 15, one, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not fear Abram, I am a shield to you. Your faith in God is a shield to you. The Lord has made my mouth sharp like a sword, sword of the spirit, the word of God. Um, last couple slides here. Um, and then I'll just talk a little bit and we'll close. Galen, the pagan writer in the second century said this in admiration about the Christians in his day, their courage in the face of death, their self-restraint in matters of sex, food, and drink, and their keen pursuit of justice. Um, at the very bottom, you'll see Larry Hurtado wrote a book called Destroyer of the Gods, um, which is great. Uh, in, I'm basically gonna kind of summarize his book into the points I feel like he's making. Um, so these are points that he talks about that helped Christianity spread throughout the world in a way that it, no other religion, nothing else had spread before. One, they were multi-ethic and accepting of all people. They connected across socioeconomic lines, such as Roman elites, down to slaves. Their expression of sexuality was so distinct in being just one man and one woman for life. They were actively against infanticide and abortion, and they were nonviolent both politically and personally. The first two sound politically liberal because they are about race and class, and the second two sound conservative because they are about sexuality, gender, and abortion. And the last one doesn't fit within either category because we love violence. That's the early church. It doesn't fit within either political spectrum. In order for us to live the Bible verses that we just read together, 
We have to become a different type of person from a different kingdom. The last slide I have for us um, is this. Oftentimes when we think about resistance and resisting the evil one, we think about prayer, we think about fasting, we think about these active faith things that we're supposed to do. But what we don't think about is that the most, some of the most important resistance we do in the world is having godly marriages and living in the world as a godly single person different than how singles in the world live. And that we have families that when people of the world walk into your house, it feels different. It looks different. How parents relate to their children sounds different. How children honor their parents sounds and looks different. That we have intergenerational relationships. We don't fragment and segment ourselves by age or by what we think is as more important or by just the people that we get along with. But we blend together as a community of faith that allows us to fill in the gaps where many of us have missed certain things. The church is supposed to be a place that where we as the hands and feet of Jesus fill in space where certain ones of us have lack. So if you are a single person, the church is supposed to be a place where you can discover intimacy, where it can be a place where you're vulnerable, where you're open and honest, where it can be a place where you're encouraged and challenged. Marriage is a forced version of that. Whether you like it or not, you can't really be that private in marriage. Stuff's all out. But when you're single, the church becomes a form of marriage for you. You choose a church, you commit to a body and you allow yourselves to be vulnerable so that you can be grown and changed and equipped over time. And likewise, those of you who are married, you do that in your marriage, but you also commit to a church and you commit to other married couples in the church to keep you accountable, to call you higher, to help you live above reproach in all areas of your life. As families, where there is lack, if you're a widow, if you're a single parent, we should be filling in the gaps. Dads, we should step up and help raise kids that don't have dads. Moms, there are kids that need more moms. That's what the church is for. God gave us the church as a gift to fill in the gaps and to be the hands and feet in Jesus where culture just throws you to the wayside. We are called to elevate, to lift up. And this is compelling resistance. There is no hierarchy of importance in the kingdom whether you're the pastor on the stage or the janitor sweeping outside. There is no more honor given to one versus the other. We are called to love and serve and elevate everyone above ourselves. And if we all love and serve and elevate everyone above ourselves, nobody feels lower, even you. If all you do is elevate and all the people around you do is elevate, we're all just gonna be levitating. That's the kingdom, is that we can live in such a way that when people interact with us, they can't help but ask the question for which the gospel is the answer. Can't remember who that quote is from, but I preached on it a few weeks ago, <laughs> but it's so good. We are called to live life in such a manner that that changes the world. Prayer is important. Studying the Bible is important, but literally how you love your spouse is also just as important. 
how you treat and honor your kids, how kids you honor your parents is just as important. How we love and relate to each other as a body, if you call Riverstone your church and you have a fence with someone in the room, you should seek to reconcile that because we are a family and there's not room for that. God has more for us than hurt and pain. He's inviting us into a life that is so much more than we could ask or imagine as he tells us earlier in Ephesians. That's the invitation for us this morning is to live a different type of life, to be a different type of husband or wife, to be a different type of father or mother, to be a different type of worker to a horrible boss because you work unto the Lord and not unto man. So if our ministry teams wanna come up um, and prayer teams wanna go ahead and get in their place, um, our prayer teams will pray for you for anything that you need. Um, But today I really feel like the Lord highlighted reconciliation um, as the focus for this time. Um, So if there is someone in this room, like I just mentioned, that you feel like you have a fence towards, I'd encourage you to go find them and to fix that. If there are marriages in this room and you guys need to reconcile, you need to ask for forgiveness or repent about some things, this is the place to do it. In order for us to live lives that God is calling us to, the higher call that he calls us to, we have to be united as a family of faith because one of the primary schemes of the devil is to create disunity between marriages, between families, between churches. And it starts with us acknowledging our own fault and repenting of that and coming to the Lord. But it also requires us to go to other people and maybe tell them where they've hurt you, where you're just carrying offense and you're not able to be in the same room with them or to have certain conversations when they're around. So I'm gonna go ahead and pray for us and you guys can come. I'm gonna receive prayer if you would like.